You are listening to Mars Attacks Podcast, a member of Talking Metal Digital and the Cast Iron Ring. Hey, this is Michael Lando from Adrenaline Mob. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick. Hey, everyone, this is Dave Minichetti from Y&T. Hi, this is Chris Poland. Hey, this is George Lynch, Lynch Mob, Dawkins, and all kinds of other projects. Hey, pay attention. This is Joe Stump. You're listening to Mars Attacks Podcast. This is Mark Zavon from Chill Devil Hill. G'day, this is Guy from Avon. How you doing? This is Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot. This is Chris from In This Moment. Hey, this is Ron Bumblefoot, fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, this is John Lana Peace, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yow! Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. to the Mars Attack Podcast. Here is your host, Victor. Let's get it up. Welcome, one and all, to episode 89 of the Mars Attacks Podcast. I am your host, Victor. And this episode features a conversation that I had during the live show with Scott from Focus on Metal, who's come back to uh, lend a hand with some commentary, and uh, also Chris Simzak from Simzak, excuse me, from 
Despo Geek Podcast, also returning. And we touch upon the wonderful world of member changes within bands. Well, we start out with that, and it sort of escalates into other things. But that's the gist of what the episode is about. As you can hear from my voice, I have a nice little cold going on, so I'm not going to talk all that long. And our discussion is somewhat long, so that will make up for it. Uh, in any event, had some news earlier this week about ACDC, a group that comes up frequently during this episode, and all types of rumors. Everything is just rumors at this point regarding Malcolm Young, regarding a possible stroke that he's had. Maybe it's life-threatening. Maybe it isn't. Maybe his motor skills are gone. Maybe they're not. So who knows? Who knows what's going on? Regardless, hopefully he recovers and is able to contribute somewhat to the new ACDC album that they're supposedly working on. If not, I hope that at least he can lead a comfortable life, because that is obviously more important than music. That said, with all the money that they probably have, whether he's doing music or not, he's going to be able to live comfortably. Just hopefully there's no type of health issues that he has to deal with or any sort of ailments. But yeah. Uh, what else? New Mastodon. I actually just purchased it off of iTunes. Really cool track called High Road. Not going to get into it right now. Going to sort of sync things up with what my comments are during the show. So uh, what the first track that we played was actually from Shandy's Addiction, which actually featured Tom Morello, who just welcomed Kiss into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Had some pretty cool things to say. If you didn't listen to my last episode, or the last episode of Talking Metal, where I appear with Mark Striegel, a lot of people have been giving us some good comments regarding that episode, so I'm glad people did check it out and did enjoy it. Um, in any event, we did play the Calling Dr. Love off of the Kiss My Ass tribute album that Kiss did put out. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a pause and have some wonderful women give you some information before pitching things off to the interview. And that's basically it. Like I said, struggling with this cold, so... Not going to talk all that much. Uh, thanks in advance for listening to the episode. Remember, you can subscribe to this very podcast via Stitcher or iTunes. If neither one works for you, there is the feed burner feed right there on the right hand side of the home page. You'll find it in the top right hand corner. It's a little white box with a flame if not just leave us a comment and I'll point you in the right direction there and uh, that's about it again thanks for listening and hope you enjoy this episode of the Mars Attacks podcast want to keep up with all things Mars Attacks show your support by liking us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Mars Attacks radio 
follow us on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash Mars Aries 2005. Don't want to miss out on an episode of the podcast? Go to iTunes or to Stitcher and subscribe. While you're there, leave us your comments. For more information, go to MarsAttacksRadio.com. by checking out all of the great stores we've affiliated to. Go to Affiliate Stores and click on the merchant you're interested in purchasing from. It's that easy. You don't pay anything more, and we receive a small percentage of each sale.
little John Norum there covering Vinnie Vincent with Back on the Streets there. Uh, before that, obviously, we had a track that either people love or hate that was coming off of the Kiss My Ass, Kiss Self Tribute there. That's Shandy's Addiction covering Calling Dr. Love. And way back before that, we had Anthrax with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley on backing vocals doing Love Her All I Can. Joining me on the phone is our good friend Scott Thompson from Focus on Metal. And and I almost, not that I messed up your last name, but I did mess up your last name once before. I called you instead of Scott Thompson, I called you Scott Thomas. So I guess I sort of did a Ramirez myself. Yeah, you know, it happens. <laughs> How are you tonight, Scott? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm, uh, you know, glad to be back on talking with you and uh, always a good time. Absolutely. Always a lot of fun. We're supposed to have Chris from the Despot Geek podcast joining us shortly. Uh, the topic of conversation tonight is always something that's puzzled me. And, you know, we we seem to always have this uh, kiss lasso going on where we, where we get brought back into topics that surround the band. But this is a topic that's surrounded a lot of other bands as well. Uh, which is the dreaded lineup change and how fans actually, uh, how they react to the lineup changes because it isn't always the same and it seems as if certain lineups or certain bands get a pass and other bands have their fans piss and moan until the end of time regarding them wanting a certain member back or whether, you know, what circumstances um, someone left under. Uh, what's your take on this whole situation, Scott? Yeah, you know, it, it's true. And I think you make a, a unique distinction in your whole talk about it is a lot of times it's it's the what's the circumstance, right? Did somebody get, you know, leave or did somebody end up dying? And that's the switch. And there's always that, you know, different clamorings from either one of those. But But you're right. It is very interesting. You know, you take, for instance, Aerosmith, big hoopla when Joe Perry left. But right. not so much of a big deal when Brad Whitford left. And to me, being an Aerosmith fan, either one of those was, you know, integral parts of the band. But it's it, there's in one band, two different people both playing the same instruments and a, a totally different reaction to their departure. Which is shocking because they're very they're obviously, you know, maybe Brad isn't seen as integral intricate a uh, part in the band as um uh, maybe Joe Perry but obviously his style is completely different to what Joe's playing and they complement one another like a lot of other great guitar duos mm. so uh, even you know replacing the two of them <laughs> I mean obviously we all know what state of mind Steven Tyler was in yeah yeah, but uh, maybe that made things a little different. Yeah, and then you kind of had a, you know, when you when you speak about the initial thing with Perry leaving, with that, you did kind of have a, if you bring it back around, a kiss, a little bit of a kiss ha thing happening in there, where you know, Night in the Ruts comes out and it's got Joe on the cover, but is he, you know, which songs is he really on and which ones aren't he on, and it kind of harkens right back to things like you know, like on Creatures is you know, Ace on the on the cover, which things is he on, and so there's kind of this. I think almost they 
innately understand there's going to be some kind of a backlash in how long do you hold that backlash off and kind of baby it and try to monitor it. And I think even bands kind of, at least at that level, are kind of aware of, uh, you know, potential pitfalls to what they're doing. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You bring the whole creatures and, and ace being on the cover. I mean, how many of us for the longest time thought that Ace had played on the album, and then, you know, as time goes by, you find that, oh, well, it was Vinnie Vincent. Mm. Okay, well, cool, Vinnie played on the whole album. No, wait, um, Adam Mitchell played part of Creatures of the Night. Eric Carr actually played bass on uh, I Still Love You. Um, I th- who was it, Robin Ford that I think played the solo in Creatures and... You know, as time goes by, or was it Rick Derringer? I mean, as time goes by, you unearth all these different things, and, you know, it makes you wonder, does Kiss even remember who played on what? Yeah, I, I don't think they do. It'd be interesting to find the, the studio notes on the on the Ampex tape boxes and find out what's what. But, yeah, it, you know, and, but it is, a, like I said, it's a, it's a fantastic kind of a concept of, of how people do react depending on on the band. And, you know, even I, I wish that, you know, Chris was here right now because one of the things that I thought was on his rec- one of his recent episodes where he was talking to Gary who had done the uh, done a lot of the keyboards during the Hot in the Shade era and stuff and talking about, um, you know, Eric Carr and, and the relationship with the band and all that. It would be interesting that, you know, how much he's he's heralded, how upset people were when when, uh, you know, he passed away and all that. And and would there have been a different fan reaction if they had known really what was going on, you know, with, with a lot of the things that Gary brought out in the that DB Geek episode? You know, kind of the 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 kind of the, the story, the the story that gets out in the real story, you know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you there. We've definitely had plenty of conversation back and forth, Chris and I, regarding that <laughs> that interview. That really shed a lot of light on different things, especially within the inner dynamics within the band. That I'd actually read the book that um, uh, that he references in the interview that he did with them, and I didn't think it was as bad as what you know Gary painted it mm. as, but. You know, obviously his point of view is going to be drastically different to someone from the outside looking in, and maybe he didn't like some of the things that were said. But anyway, get, getting back to what we were, you know, what the topic of conversation is, uh, you mentioned the word tragedy. It seems as if with a band going through a tragedy like ACDC, like Alice in Chains, like Ozzy with Randy Rhodes the next guy to take over is a lot more welcome than, you know, uh, like kiss where you have right now, all these people that, you know, want nothing to do with anyone outside of the original four lineup. You've had, you know, Motley Crue with Karabi, which we touched upon at the end of the, uh, last time that we got together and did an episode and you have Maiden and Priest where you have two very important lead singers, you know, Rob Halford and Bruce Dickinson leaving. And regardless how good Ripper was or how good Blaze Bailey was, people just wanted those two guys back in the band at all costs. So there was no way that those lineups could have succeeded. Mm. Yeah. And and it's, you know, you bring up like a very interesting one and that's, you know, ACDC. I mean, to this day, people still debate about the Bon Scott versus the Brian Johnson thing. 
And that's almost to me like an, an ultimate switch there. I mean, it's an unavoidable switch, but the fact that, that, you know, it isn't that they were at a high point like Bruce or Rob leaving Priest or Maiden after several successful albums that really, at least in the U.S., like Highway to Hell is what exposed a lot of people to ACDC. Before that, you know, when that, when that album came out and that song got big, people I remember in high school were amazed that I had all these other ACDC albums. Like, what are all those? It's like, well, that's everything that came before this one. So that was kind of, you know, they had hit that peak. And then this guy is gone. And the next thing that comes up is, you know, they've got a new singer and kind of the ultimate album that, you know, they're going to be remembered for forever. And you kind of have to wonder if, you know, all of that kind of a thing, not to quote be a pun, but the perfect storm of what happened there let the fans embrace Brian Johnson as opposed to if they had come out with, say, a, you know, fly on the wall or flick of the switch instead of black and back in black at that point, would Brian have been as accepted and would it, they have continued on or would they have kind of faltered at that point? I think that's one of these ones that I think just worked out perfect for the band. Absolutely. And I think maybe the trials and tribulation that they had leading up to Back in Black, not only with Bon Scott's passing, but how difficult it was to record and... I hope I'm not mixing this up. The album before was Highway to Hell, correct? Correct. Okay. They were working with Mutt Lang at that time. Mm. They worked with Mutt Lang on that album. And it's always been well documented that they had all types of uh, producer issues when they recorded that. And finally, Mutt came on board and sort of righting the ship to an extent. So maybe that has a lot to play in with you know, Back in Black being a little bit more as accepted, where the two albums that you mentioned, interestingly enough, were produced by the Young Brothers mm, yeah. and not their older brother who had done all the production leading up to Mutt Lang coming in. So as you're saying, would that have, you know, <laughs> had Back in Black come out afterwards, would the band have still had that same following to put Back in Black out and would it have been as big as what it was? It's, as you're saying, the perfect storm. It was put out right place, right time. And it's, you know, still to this day, it's argued amongst their fans, amongst music fans in general. You know, which of the two albums is more important? Is it Back in Black or is it Highway to Hell? Right. And, and you know, I think from a, from a long-standing ACDC fan's point of view, they probably rightfully point to Highway to Hell because it was a culmination of everything that came before. And then I think kind of that new fan, kind of like the Metallica Black Album fan, they would go right, right towards, you know, having Highway to Hell as being that's the album. You know, that's it's almost like that's where their journey with that band started. And probably most of them didn't continue on very much further after that either, you know? Yeah, I, I think if you look at, Obviously, the the sales of the albums and the popularity of these specific albums, if you really look at it, there was, you know, somewhat of a drop off with For Those About to Rock. But up until about Razor's Edge, everything in between was really, you know, a big cut below uh, popularity wise than everything that came before and everything that came after. I think ACDC really had a resurgence there in the 90s, possibly before a lot of the bands, uh, before the Kiss resurgence happened or before, 
you know, a lot of these other bands came back around to becoming popular again. ACDC actually was maybe almost even uh, a decade before all of them because Razor's Edge came out at the beginning of the decade and a lot of these bands didn't come back around. Um, uh, Maiden with Brave New World, for example, wasn't until the end of the decade. Um, actually, Priest getting back with Halford was after the 90s, so they almost were you know, ahead of the curve um, to a sense with actually starting to build their popularity or rebuild their popularity before a lot of these other bands. And maybe that has led to them being still a cut above all these bands nowadays, mm. not only their sales, but with the way that they tour, because they're still a stadium band where a lot of these other bands can no longer do that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, they're definitely, they've got a show that's built around stuff that, you know, everybody knows and so it's it's you know it's, it's kind of a winning formula the other thing that's different i think about a band like maybe acdc than a lot of these other bands is that by and large they they have an amazing control over every bit of information that gets out about them they they don't give a lot of interviews you don't hear them on you know they don't you don't they don't hear them on podcast or anything like that they're they're very much a even more of a closed shop than the rolling stones are yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, podcasting for a lot of these people to begin with, a lot of the uh, not older bands, but some of the more established bands, unfortunately, still don't see it as a um, serious enough format. Mm. I mean, it's mind boggling how uh, and I've had this discussion with many a uh, PR person over here in Europe where they'll tell you, you know, unless you're part of the national media they don't want anything to do with you and you know you say well you know what's better a podcast where people can listen to it at all times or do you actually want somebody to stay up until 4 or 5 a.m to see that you know 30 second clip of <laughs> so so um <laughs> talking to to a band you know yeah um, so it just makes you wonder yeah. uh looks like Chris is ready to to join us. There's there are a few other bands that I want to mention because there are a few others that I think have sort of circumvented this as well. And I've actually brought this up with someone pertaining to uh, one of these bands. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna check out for a second a a cover of the Rush track "Working Man," which actually has Sebastian Bach on lead vocals and has Jakey Lee on guitar this is from i believe in the late 90s this came out but anyway we're gonna uh play this for you and then hop back on with uh both chris and scott <clears throat> Seems to me that I can live my life I'm not better than I think I am I guess that's why they call me The working man They call me the working man I guess I 
Robson there on guitar. One of these things that um, I guess that lineup change was controversial back in the day. Maybe looking back, that may be the one album where Motorhead actually did change their sound a little bit. And through the years, I mean, they've done a little tweaking here and there. And uh, I know a lot of people like to pride themselves and say, well, ACDC and Motorhead never changed their sound. Uh, maybe they didn't change their songwriting styles, but I do think that both bands, I think especially Motorhead has changed with the times, especially with uh, tuning and um, and just different things in the studio. I mean, you look at an album like March or Die or Bastards, you can tell that both of those albums were recorded in the 90s, just how they were tuned and how they were recorded and just the sound that both of those albums have and, and actually a few of the other albums that came out after that. Uh, I was actually in a um, discussion today on Facebook regarding ACDC, and I've always felt that Fly on the Wall sort of has a small twinge of uh, the Young Brothers going for uh, the the quote-unquote brown sound. Uh Someone like yourself, who's obviously a big-time ACDC fan, and obviously you're a big-time gear guy and um, big-time guitar player, do you think that ACDC on an album like uh, Fly on the Wall did try to change slightly with the times to make sure that they were still palatable for what was going on at the time oh yeah i mean absolutely it's you know you hear some of those early albums and it's it's basically that classic thing of of malcolm with his torn apart gresh and you know just has that really kind of edgy sound and stuff and it's very much more a smooth slick sound you know it, it definitely is something that's different there you know the, the angus's sg sound it's still pretty much the same sound but as much as everyone points to Angus, I mean, really, it comes down to to Malcolm and you know Cliff really being that engine behind it. That's what makes the song sound different, depending on the album. So, so you're essentially agreeing with what I said? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, because um, I've come to learn over the years. Uh, my brother, being a big time ACDC fan, it's his favorite band. Uh, that. A lot of ACDC fans are very touchy with saying that the band progressed and did do a few things over the years to try to stay up with the times. And I mean, I was looking at the video for uh, Sink the Pink today, and I forgot how long Angus had his hair back then. And he's obviously got a perm in the video and his hair's lightened. And, you know, there there were a bunch of different things. And I was thinking to myself, I mean, it's not a bad thing. I mean, because so many bands went through different phases to remain relevant and to remain 
you know, within um, uh, to to remain in the public eye. Mm. You know, a lot of people point to Kiss or Motley Crue, quote unquote, selling out over the years to fit in with different fads. But I mean, I, I think it's very evident with both of these bands. And another one that comes up in this discussion is Slayer. I do think that Slayer in the mid nineties, like so many other bands, similar to, you know, people adopting the, uh, Van Halen Brown sound. You had so many bands adopt the seven string and the down tuning after the first corn album came out. And to me, there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, I think it's kind of dumb that, you know, you see interviews with, uh, with Kerry King, for example, now, and, He'll maybe shun that album. Even Mal or excuse me, Angus shuns a uh, fly on the wall as being his least favorite out of their catalog. But I mean, once some of that is sort of set in stone and, you know, is there, I mean, it's, it's what it was for the times. I mean, you really can't go back and change that. Right. Yeah, it, it's true. I think another, another thing you, when you talk about a lot of those bands and member changes that a big part of that change in sound is really, the change in drummers, you know, right. Phil Rudd had that very, you know, basic or people assume it to be a basic sound. But if you really sat down and tried to play his parts, most drummers would have a hard time keeping that same Phil Rudd rhythm, although it sounds right. very simplistic when you listen to it. But then, you you know, when you take it and switch it to somebody like, you know, a Simon or a Chris Slade, those drummers had a kind of a different way of playing and those songs had a different swing to them than one they did with Phil. So obviously you're going to start to have that different change in sound, you know, even when you take something as big as the who and you go from having, you know, Keith who was all over the place and you switch it up and, and now you've got someone who's an extremely regimented drummer, right? You know, it's just a big change in the whole total sound of the band. That, uh, that reminds me of, uh, with, my previous podcast, the one where you're featured in, uh, the whole Clive Berta and Nico McBrain switch in, in Iron Maiden. Mm. Clive, such a different feel player, played a very swing-type style like a Garth Samuelson played, like a Peter Chris played. But you have Nico come along, who's such a technical monster. And those songs, no matter how good he plays, just don't sound the same as how Clive played them. Correct. Yeah. And, and it was interesting because Clive fit really right in with kind of that punky ethos that, you know, they originally had, too. It was that interesting combination of of that kind of a swing with with the punk connection. And it's almost like, you know, once Nico came in, they, they started with that more of a progressive direction than they ever had before. Right. Absolutely. And, and I mean, as a kid growing up, being a drummer. The intro to The Prisoner, that was the sort of, you know, when you were learning how to play metal or Maiden songs, obviously it was that and Run to the Hills where everyone was trying to, you know, learn how to play it. And it's difficult because he did have a specific style to how he he did play. And hell, there are all the various live albums that Maiden has put out over the years that um that prove that mm. that you hear Nico playing these parts and they aren't exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, he's I mean 
and he's a monster player too. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of drummers that are, you know, huge drummers that will say, I've sat and watched him and I still can't figure out what the hell he did. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. N- Nico is ridiculous with, with his foot, for example, for years, he used to use the old, uh, Ludwig speed King pedal, which looks like a little dinky piece of nothing. Mm-hmm. And he's recently switched over to DW. But, I mean, if you listen to the track Wicker Man off of Brave New World, that's him with one foot. And it sounds almost like a double bass. He's playing so fast. So um, he's a monster all all onto his own self. So, I mean, I'm not trying to diminish anything that he did. It's just something different. The Nico example is something that I do think Maiden fans accepted a lot more than the Bruce switch. Oh, yeah. You know, and with the Blaze Bailey albums, I mean, I, I think if if you really get down to it, uh, actually, it looks like Chris is ready, so we'll... Bring him into the conversation here. Hello. Hello, Chris. Hey. You have uh, Scott from Focus on Metal, and now we have Chris from Decibel Geek on. And uh, to anyone that is listening to this live, the person that screwed up the times was myself. I forgot that Nashville is in the central time zone. Yeah, so. right on, we're right on the edge. You're, 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 we're, we're actually talking about a band that um, sings about being on the razor's edge. Uh, actually, two bands. We talked a little ACDC there. And we're talking about Iron Maiden and their switch from uh, Bruce Dickinson over to Blaze Bailey. And a lot of people don't realize that the main reason that Adrian Smith left and the reason that Bruce left afterwards was because of Steve Harris's control over the band. They're not relenting control. Had the Blaze Bailey switch of not occurred and Bruce have sung on X Factor and the following album, Virtuality 12, I believe is the name, um, would those albums have been more accepted by fans? Uh, Scott's probably a better person to ask because I'm thinking Scott probably knows a lot more about Maiden than me. I'm not the biggest <laughs> Maiden fan. Um, just going off what I've heard of Blaze Bailey, uh, I think I think it could only have helped if Bruce was singing on those albums. But um, from what I've heard from a lot of fans, they didn't really like the material to begin with on those albums. But that, I'm I'm a total outsider when it comes to Iron Maiden, so I'm probably not the right person to ask. Sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no problem. I think I think a lot of the opinion of those albums was really colored by the singer chains. It overrided anybody else's opinion of really listening to the songs. And I, right. you know, I think that you know, no matter what, I think that that was doomed just because of the outcry of Bruce not being on them. Mm. Right, I, I agree. Because if you look back and and you see the album, or I'm sorry, the tracks that have come out that Blaze originally sung on that Bruce actually did live like Klansman and Future Real, they sound great with him on vocals. I mean, they really took the songs. Maybe they were accepted a lot more by fans after Bruce actually sung on them. And maybe that was 
also Steve Harris sort of patting himself on the back saying, hey, look, you know, they're great tracks. You guys just didn't, you know, hop aboard with with the singer with the singer transition. Excuse me. Mm. I would I my personal opinion, I would rather hear I want to hear Iron Maiden do more stuff like Tattooed Millionaire that Bruce did. But but even still with that, with Tattooed Millionaire, um, I think the one thing that Bruce has done fairly well with his solo work is that he's varied so much that there's such a diverse opinion on his solo work because Tattooed Millionaire is almost like an ACDC sounding album. Mm-hmm. Then you have Skunk Works, which is just going in an alternative metal direction. You have Chemical Wedding and Accident of Birth, which sort of reeled him back in to more of a Maiden style, but it's still detuned guitars. It's a lot heavier. And for someone like myself, I preferred what he was releasing as a solo artist over what Maiden was was putting out, only because not only the songwriting I felt was better, but the overall sound of what they were putting out seemed to be much more cohesive. Yeah, I mean, mean, he did really was willing to take some more chances there. And I think it goes back to what you were talking about is that of Steve's ultimate control over the sound of the band. And so you kind of heard a little bit more of of different things. And so, you know, I I think that probably plays into it. And some of that stuff, like you said, is is really good. I think probably a good example, you know, as a comparison is um, when you listen to things like, you know, bring your daughter to the slaughter and how does it sound when Maiden does it? How did it sound when Bruce did it, you know? Right. It's two totally different animals. Mm. I, for my personal opinion, I prefer the original Bruce version because it was a little raw and it just seemed like the, the Maiden version sort of dragged on in the video. I always remember them playing it on towards the, the tail end of of Headbangers Ball. Mm. It was just a really cheesy out of sync video. It was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean that kind of, you know, brings it back around when you talk about those comparisons like that. You know, it brings back to when I we first started talking, we talk about Aerosmith and you talk about Joe Perry leaving and on that first Joe Perry project album he's got Let the Music Do the Talking. Fantastic song. And then you see when Aerosmith covered it, and it just kind of lost its soul. And, you know, it's so it's again, I, I love that Joe Perry project version. Aerosmith one, I'm not that crazy about it's it's you kind of got to really see, uh, you know, Joe's version kind of harken back to to rocks and to, you know, the classic Aerosmith sound instead of the slicker, you know, later on sound. You're not a big fan of Nine Lives? Uh, no. Okay, just wondering. <laughs> so, but you're talking about videos, like, and you mentioned Bruce Dickinson. I'm sorry to take things off in a tangent, but we played the video. Well, we played the, we played Tattoo Millionaire on on my show once, and we got to talking about the video. Does anyone, do either of you guys, know what the hell that video is supposed to be about? No, no clue at all. There's like there's scenes of Bruce like looking out windows in a building, and then there's a scene where he's looking at a periscope and a submarine, and then there's a guy covered in bandages on roller skates. Somebody was doing some really good drugs when they decided the concept (laughs) of that video. That is British humor at its best there. You have to to ask Richie about this one, Scott, Uh, because... I don't know. I think this goes back to, like, uh, you know, if anyone remembers the Monty Python sketch, the Confuse a Cat Incorporated, maybe that's what it's all about. 
Well, that's uh, funny. I, I was drawing a blank when you brought up the video. But once you started describing it, I started remembering it in my head. And, and I always thought it was sort of that whole Monty Python type thing. So you could be right there, Scott. You probably are. <laughs> There's another band that uh, you just recently talked about, Chris. And they had, they've actually had quite a few member changes over the years. Uh, so if this band ever gets fan voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... There will be a lot of dispute over uh, what drummer goes in with them, obviously. Spinal Tap. Uh, the Spinal <laughs> Tap would, would be a, a good um, guess, but uh, you guys haven't done a special on Spinal Tap. It was Judas Priest, although they've copped to having plenty of Spinal Tap moment over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah Judas Priest. Yeah. How, how unbelievable is it that they're not in the Hall of Fame? It's just... Yeah, well, one drummer can't make it to the ceremony. He's kind of somewhere is he, else. Is he still locked up? I don't know. Yeah, I believe so. Oh, yeah, Dave Holland. Yeah, such a black not, mark on their history. <laughs> not to be mistaken with the Dave Holland that was in Great White. Totally different guy. Yeah, I'm sure it sucks for him. <laughs> ah. I'm sure he's been confused on more than one occasion with. The other one. Uh, yeah. I think I think anyone in Great White's got some some bigger issues to worry about than that. So, well, he 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 predates all that stuff. So, yeah, there's another band with a lot of members, and it's past Great White. But um, yeah, Judas Priest, man. There's a <clears throat> there's a quite a history there, and, and a good number of different players that were in the band. And I mean, you know, is anyone? I mean, is anyone going to scream that? You know, the original singer needs to be in the band. I guess, although for what he wrote, he deserves it. Les Binks certainly would deserve it, I would think. Um, you know, they were, you know, they're in a legendary band. But, yeah, I wonder if they get voted in. I get, it, it's got to be like the, the British Steel Screaming for Vengeance lineup, I'm guessing, that would be the one that would everyone would know. But, you know, is does Ripper Owens get a place in the Hall of Fame if they get voted in? Who knows? I think the problem with the hall, though, is that they've shown this year that they make up rules as they go go along yeah. because, you know, as we're saying, Dave Holland obviously has a, a big blemish, you know, there that would tarnish the hall to an extent, you know. Uh, would they allow him to get in? I would say no. Um, but at the same time, you're right. Their biggest selling albums are... British Steel, Screaming for Vengeance, and Defenders of the Faith. So, you know, the band is going to vote for Scott Travis because he's been there for 20 years. And he would deserve it, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, he's one of my all-time favorite drummers, so I can't argue that point. But you get back to uh, the Ripper years. I know people that are 10 years younger than me that swear by those albums, that that was their introduction to Judas Priest. Similar to how you've always said, Chris, that... Um, Gotta keep bringing this up, don't you, Victor? <laughs> that Crazy Nights was your introduction into Chris, into Kiss, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, and I'm not going to begrudge anyone for loving, for loving Jugulator or Demolition, those... If you love those albums and that's your Judas Priest, then so be it. Because, yeah, Crazy Nights, the late 80s era kiss, that was my kiss when I got into them. But, 
me personally, I don't like those albums, but you know, that's just, uh, from an outsider opinion of listening to it. Um, I told you Victor off mic, I didn't, I got more into Judas Priest in preparation for that special than I ever did in the years leading up to it. Cause I was very close minded growing up as a music fan. I'm more into different stuff now than I was then. I had a few Judas Priest records, but I wasn't a diehard or anything, but um, going in and listening to the whole catalog now, though, I mean, you really have to appreciate a band with that varied of a history. I mean, they um, they were not afraid to take chances, and even if they strayed off what the path that people liked was stuff like that, and or stuff like Ram It Down, or especially Turbo, not a fan of that one either, but I gotta give those guys credit for giving it a shot, you know. Um, there's only so many ACDCs that can pull off doing the same album over and over again, and some Priest fans may like the idea that they did everything like that, like British Steel or Unleashed in the East or everything over and over again. But, I mean, that that stuff only gets you so far. You do have to kind of go with the times for a while, and they did that. And But as far as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, this is just... KISS is just uh, show, this uh, The KISS example has just shown... It's blown the roof off of how how biased and two-faced they are. And the thing with the Grateful Dead getting a guy that wrote stuff for them in who didn't even play with them, but Eric Carr, Eric Carr and Bruce Kulick are not allowed in. And of course, Vinnie Vincent, who saved him, but I rest <laughs> my case. But, you know, that's, it's just, it's the height of insanity. And as I said, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, Victor, I'm just happy. I'll be happy when all this is over. But if Judas Priest gets nominated in this, this is all going to rear its ugly head all over again. And imagine when Deep Purple gets in. How many people have been in Deep Purple? Christ. Yeah, definitely. Are they going to like deny Steve Morris? I mean, yes, it just gets it gets ridiculous. And they do make their own rules. And it's I think that that's part of what kills their credibility going forward. I don't know, Scott. Did what? What do you think of uh, like replacement members and priests? I mean, are you a big fan of the Ripper years? Um, I'm kind of with Chris on that. Those weren't really. You know, my favorite albums, I, I was glad there was Priest music. But when I compare those to a lot of the stuff that came before it, they were a little bit more one dimensional than you take something like Point of Entry, which had a lot of different things on there. And it was kind of a great dynamic album where it seemed like the Ripper stuff seemed to be more of a continuation of like, OK, Painkiller was really good and powerful and fast. Let's make an album that's like that, you know, all the way through again. Mm hmm. Yeah, Victor, did I ever get your opinion on those albums? You actually didn't. I Jugulator, I'm not that big a fan of outside of two tracks, but I do have to say that I really do like Demolition. I do think that Demolition is similar to uh, Maiden's X Factor in the sense that there's four or five really strong tracks on there, in my opinion that had Rob Halford have sung on them, people would be singing a completely different tune about that album. Um, you know, tracks like Feed On Me or One On One or um, Subterfuge or um, Hell Is Home, for example, those four tracks. Had Rob Halford had sung those tracks, they would be instant classics. But because Ripper sung on them, you know, they're almost you know, uh, bastardized and in the corner because, you know, Halford wasn't on them. Um, seeing what they put out afterwards, especially, I, I do think that 
you know, I know a lot of people liked Angel of Retribution, but oh, I did. Yeah. Um, a lot of the tracks on there were sort of easy in the sense that it seemed as if Roy Z and them sat down and, okay, we need a painkiller track. Um, okay, let's make this track sound like painkiller. Let's make this track sound like something that came off of Defenders. Let's make, you know, it just seemed like the album was just too on the safe side, in my opinion. Now, Nostradamus. <laughs> oh. I I think that that is the the typical band showing that, uh, and and some people are going to take this the wrong way, but unfortunately there are too many bands, too many bands that become, as we talked the last time, Scott, about bands that transition to becoming big brands. They have managers behind them or people behind them that are yesing them to death with every idea that they have. So instead of taking a step back and saying, no, wait, you know, honestly, guys, this one isn't going to work for your fan base. I know you guys really want to do this, but how about you keep that in the vaults for yourselves? You know, Um, how about you guys record Lulu, um, but it's like a pet project and, you know, you guys did it and let's just, you know, keep it. So that it doesn't go out for mass consumption. Yeah, I mean, even even Spinal Task managers told them not to do Saucy Jack. I was going to say, <laughs> that was Priest doing Saucy Jack. I even said it on Facebook some, to somebody the other day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's them, it's them, it's them uh, screwing up by pl- not playing it safe. And, yeah, I, there, I can't find anything great on that album myself. I've, and I've tried, but, oh, horrible album. I remember downloading the title track for free, and I was like, wow, this this could be really cool after all. And I was sort of hesitant because I had read that the person that came up with the idea was their manager <laughs> and, and said, you know, it would be great if you guys do a concept album based on Nostradamus. And I was thinking, you know, well, not for nothing, but a, you know, as good of a manager as they have, they really shouldn't be going to their manager for musical advice. You know, they should be taking care of the business side of things while the band takes care of the music side of things. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that, I was like, well, let's see what they got. And ooh, let me tell you, I saw them on that tour and I saw them on the following tour. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've never seen that many people go to the concession stand <laughs> one time outside of say maybe a drummer, a guitar solo, uh, um, people were just flocking to the bathrooms and to the concession stands during anything from from that album. Maybe it was a conspiracy, because I did see that the album was sponsored by Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even, you know, I, I think if you took like that title track and you put that on something like, like Turbo, it probably would have fit right in on that album, and people wouldn't have thought much more about it than they did about Turbo. But, you know, that's like the only really good kind of crunchy priest-like song that's on that whole album. So I think the whole thing just gets lumped in as just, you know, it's crap across the board. You know, it's kind of too bad. But, I mean, even Nostradamus would have been easily have predicted that that was a bad idea. <laughs> that's very well put. <laughs> There's one band that to me with all of the lineup changes sort of sticks out. And someone that I've gotten to interview quite a few times over the years 
has been Bobby Blitz from Overkill. And one of the times I asked him point blank, I said, look, you guys have had, I don't know how many lineup changes over the years, but you guys seem to, you know, miss this scrutiny of, oh, well, unless you get Rat Skates back in the band or, you know, um, so-and-so guitarist that they've had over the years, we're not going to dig the band anymore. Overkill has really been able to sort of skirt this whole issue, whereas Anthrax has been hammered for it. Kiss has obviously been hammered for it. We've touched upon, you know, ACDC. We've touched upon um, Maiden and and Priest. But Overkill doesn't have that Randy Rhodes or, or, or Cliff Burton, you know, tragic side to things where bands openly accepted their replacements they've had living and breathing members that have just you know for one reason or another have left the band or been kicked out and they still maintain the the popularity that they have obviously overkill doesn't have the sales or popularity that um, metallica has for example or ozzy has but they have a very loyal fan base that is always there when they're playing shows so why does a band like overkill why are their fans accepting of their lineup changes but so many other fans of other bands their number one priority is just to sit there and piss on every member change and at the beginning of of every interview it's when are so-and-so coming back to the band i i think it's it's because I think Overkill and their fans are kind of almost like not even one step apart. They're like a half a step apart. They're, it's not like they're so removed like a lot of other bands. I think that they're just they're almost like that neighborhood garage band to you. And so people think, hey, friends change, bands change. It, I think it's just there's no they're so accessible, so easygoing. There's no, you know, except for Bobby Blitz, maybe there's no really like one identifiable overkill member type of thing it just i think they just they're just so not removed from everything that people just accept what goes on i think that's a fair point and i they're i don't know overkill from the fans of them that i've met i you know i i've become a fan of them over the last few years but thanks to you know my co-host you know really pounding the over or really waving the flag for overkill their fans are so passionate about the band and the direction of the band that I think it overshadows who's in the band. I mean, although Bobby Blitz, let's face it, if he's gone, I don't think you have overkill. That's one. I think he's irreplaceable. And, you know, Dee Dee Verney's been in the band the whole time. But it's it's one of those things where, and also the the success level is not up on a Metallica level, like you were saying, Victor. So you're they're going to be less scrutinized because the people that are there are the hardcore fans. So those fans seem to stick by them no matter what. Um, and they're also kind of a band. They're, they're kind of the band that should have been bigger, you know? So I think everyone's kind of like, as long as they're still around, let's keep supporting them, you know, and hope that they will get over the top. Cause they're, they're more deserving of attention than what they've gotten over the years, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and sonically, I mean, they're still, even with any kind of a member change, they really haven't gone off the rails and done something different either. So the fans continue to get what they want 
out of overkill and overkill is very happy with where they are and it isn't like oh we have to go do some artsy fartsy thing or whatever so you know electric age comes out and it's just as great as the last album that came out and i I think they just continue to satisfy their fans as well with a constant deliverable predictable product and that's what they're looking for and that's what they deliver yeah i i have to agree with with both of you with your assessments uh it's just a shame that that isn't applied to you know other bands uh we keep coming back to kiss it's astonished me excuse me it's astonished me how uh, so many people are are hung up with the makeup issue that it seems as if the musicianship that is behind that makeup the musicianship with tommy thayer and with uh, Eric Singer seems to be forgotten. I mean, these guys are doing a hell of a job within the band to, you know, sort of keep up what's going on within Kiss. It isn't as if they got, you know, I mentioned this the last time, two slobs off the corner that can't really, you know, keep up with the band and actually give you the show that people have come accustomed to seeing with Kiss. So, I mean... Asking if the makeup means that much is sort of a dumb question, but is the makeup greater than the musicianship that's behind it? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, uh, I will always probably prefer the original band over all the other lineups. Even though I got into them in the '80s, uh, you know, the Crazy Nights era was the door opener, and I, that's when I first started seeing the band live. So they're they hold a special place in my heart. But at the same time, the original band that's. In my opinion, that's where a lot of the magic came from. Um, and that's also what hooked me into the band was as much as I love the 80s and early 90s stuff, always seeing that old stuff always made me think, man, what a magical thing that those four guys created. But with the makeup issue with Tommy and Eric, I wasn't super thrilled about it at first because as a fan, I wanted to see new characters. I'm a diehard, so I love Eric Carr and I love Vinnie Vincent. And I thought it was great that they had new characters. Um, so I would have preferred that, but I got over it and, um, it's not, yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing with Peter and Ace can feel they're entitled to feel offended by it. If they like, I think they've earned that right. Cause they're the guys that created that. They have a right to be upset about that. But as a fan of the band, I honestly will state this and some people will skewer me for this. Um, the Sonic Boom and especially the Monster albums, I think a lot of fans would really like those albums if it were Ace and Peter on those albums instead of uh, Tommy and Eric, especially Monster. Monster gets shit on all the time, and I do. I don't. I really don't understand why the production level is not great. I don't think Paul did the greatest job on it, and it's brick walled all to hell on the mastering. But the musically, I think that's a solid rock and roll album. I don't. And and like. A, Tommy's got to do a space song, and Eric's doing a song that sounds like Peter's. Besides all that, Shout Mercy is a, is a solid song. Eat Your Heart Out's a solid song. Long Way Down's a great song. And this is my opinion, of course, but there's I don't think it's the weak album that a lot of people make it out to be, and I have to tip my hat to that to the current lineup. They did a great job on that album, in my opinion. So if makeup is obscuring that for you, then I'm sorry, but because I think you missed a really good album. You mean your opinion isn't the only one that counts, Chris? No, I'm one of those people that doesn't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think what, what skewers, uh, I think a lot of, you know, perception about Kiss is that 
it's that overarching thing that people always equate kiss with the merchandising and the cash grab and all of that. So I, I think that no matter what they do, people are just going to instantly start to equate it with, oh, well, they're just doing this for the money. And I think that that's what ends up, I think, putting stuff what Eric and Tommy do into less of a light. People forget these guys, you know, they were musicians first. They forget about, you know, Eric playing and things like Black Sabbath and stuff. They, they forget about Tommy Thayer doing black and blue and all that kind of gets obscured, I think, by this, oh, well, they had them put on the classic makeup so that they can continue to make money. And I think that's just, that's kind of the overarching thing that will continue to just haunt them, you know, never ending. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I thought was interesting that um, I think most of us just found out uh, due to this Rolling Stone interview uh, that just came out is that Ace is leasing the makeup back to the band. Uh, I proposed this on Facebook the other day. So if Ace decides that what's best for him is to continue to lease the makeup back to the band... Uh, does everyone's opinion of Tommy change or is it still going to be the same thing? Because obviously Ace is going to do it for monetary reasons. It isn't because of any other reason, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, but that you got to remember that's according to Ace because somebody already confronted Paul about this on Twitter about it saying Ace claims that he owns his makeup or that he's about to get his, the rights back to his makeup and, and Paul and Gina both said it's nonsense. They own it. So it, the real question is who do you believe? You know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, it's like I said, I don't, I, at this point I'm over it. If, if, if it may, if Tommy and Eric wearing those makeup designs means there's a kiss, then fine. Let them wear it. Um, I think there's more pressing issues at stake with kiss musically though. And that's the the big elephant in the room that Paul never wants to talk about, and that's Paul's voice. Um, there's a serious problem going on there, and it's and I'm not saying it to be oh hypercritical of Paul because believe me, Paul was like my idol growing up. This guy, this was this is like the he's the ultimate rock rock star in my opinion, and it breaks my heart to see what's happened to him. But and then some people, oh well, he's this age and that age, and he's done that, and he's given us a lot, and, and it's not me being. I'm not bashing the guy, but there's a clear problem here. I'm more worried for his own health than anything because it seems like every time I see, I see live clips on YouTube and stuff, it just seems like he's ripping his vocal cords to shreds. And, like, I got to wonder how much time does he have left on the stage, you know? that That's a, a fair point. I was watching a a video of him from Japan from last year mm-hmm. trying to pull off the intro to Heaven's on Fire. That's brutal. And I was thinking, just skip it, you know. Why not just do what, you know? I've I've done countless covers, and one of the the, the things that I've done is um, when playing with bands, hey, let's do that sort of Detroit Rock City into King of the Nighttime World, where you're just going from one song into the other. Don't even bother doing the intro. Just use Heaven's on Fire to do that. Just. You know, start another song up. When you end it, just hop on into it. You don't need that intro, you know? Right. Yeah. I think he definitely doesn't do himself any favors either. Like, just even during the shows where he still has to do those same big kind of, you know, people kind of things, too, that 
I mean, that can't be helping his voice either. It's it's like change what you do in between songs, too, and keep it low key for yourself. Give you a break. But he still tries to do the full full thing, full throttle all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's and it saddens me because I love Kiss more than anything. I mean, sorry to turn this into Kiss talk again, but it's just I don't know. I just it, it make it breaks my heart to see him like this. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, he's so angry in interviews and on Twitter and stuff. And like, you know. If I was Paul Stanley and I had the voice that he had, you know, over the years, I would be pretty angry myself, you know, so I can see where it's coming from. Because as much as you may not like Crazy Nights, listen to some of the high notes he's hitting on that thing. Jeez. Yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of people now are kind of learning from some of this, too, though. They, you know, they see Paul, see Don Dockin and stuff like that. So when you looked at, like, Miles Kennedy a few weeks ago on um, uh, that metal show and they asked him about, you know, are you doing anything differently with the re- recording? And he did have to admit that, you know, he does now think about, geez, how I'm recording this. Am I going to be able to sing this in 10 years? And maybe I should approach this differently now instead of later, you know? So I think a lot of people are starting to think about longevity with what they're doing today. Hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, I think the voice is, you know, it's obviously another muscle, you know, so uh, it needs to be, worked out properly and it needs to be rested properly. And I think maybe kiss to a fault is maybe doing too much uh, in the sense that do they really have to, you know, go out and play every single date that for example, they're going to do with Def Leppard. Now I think that they could comfortably play two, three times a week and, you know, preserve Paul's voice and maybe even put on a better show that way, you know? Uh, It's also interesting that Gene is also mentioned in this Rolling Stone magazine that he's 64 and that he's probably only got two to three more tours left in him. So I was surprised that they're even thinking of doing two to three more tours, to be honest with you. I, I thought this year would be it, honestly. I think if you look at it, though, a band like Kiss, a band like... See, this is why when bands like Kiss and Judas Priest and Scorpions and Motley Crue say, that's it, we're wrapping it up, no more tours. The thing is, there's too much money wrapped up in playing five dates a year over here in Europe at you know, at the Wacken Festival, at the Download Festival, at the Hellfest... These bigger festivals are still willing to give them more money than an entire tour of the states. So it's difficult to say, and a lot of people used to criticize Metallica for this. They would say, well, Metallica's washed up in the states before Death Magnetic. I don't know how many people I read on the web saying, no, 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 they're done in the states. That's why they're not touring the states. No, it makes more sense for them to do you know, two shows a week and make more money than they would do in a full week's worth of touring in the U.S. without having to lug their own equipment around, without you know having to do a lot of, without having to spend as much money as they normally would touring. Sure. So sure. it's difficult for me to believe even Motley Crue now saying, "Oh no, we're you know this is it. We're we're not going to do anything else." Oh, so if you know any of these festivals come calling. To do a one-off show, you're not going to do it. And then at the same time, then all of a sudden when you have U.S. promoters and Australian promoters say, hey, 
what about us? You're just going to ignore them altogether. The the money ends up pulling all of these guys back in. They're still looking for that one last big payday, that one last big hit that they had way back when. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's still going to keep drawing them back in. It's I mean, I have a hard time thinking that Kiss couldn't do like what the Bee Gees would do. They would do one show a year. It would be on pay-per-view and they would make a boatload of money off of it because the fans knew that that would be their only show that they would be seeing them that year. They would sell out an entire stadium, plus the viewership all over the world was just ridiculous for for a pay-per-view concert. Yeah, well, plus with Kiss, I mean, you know, Gene says he doesn't, you know, he only maybe has two tours in. Well, they could do those shows like you're talking about, and who really knows if it's Gene that's playing, right? I mean, they've done it before where people have stood in for him, so... Hey, they could do it again, right? Well, they've done it on albums. He's always been the guy on stage. I know that. I wonder. I, but the, like I said, with Paul's voice, I don't know how much more they have in them. That's. But you bring up an interesting point, Victor, because I gotta wonder if the reason that these paydays are being offered to Motley Crue and Kiss and bands like that is because what's going to fill the void when these guys retire? I mean, is, right. is there anything out there that's new that you see filling up arenas in the future? It's it's slim pickings as far as I can tell. Yeah, well, at least in the U.S. it is. You know, I think in Europe you you definitely do have, you know, you have bands that are still, you know, filling that. I mean, Alter Bridge, you know, as an example, they're they're huge in Europe. Yeah, and yeah. well, and Volbeat too. They're, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, they're one band I can see kind of. The, the torch being passed on to them because they've got arena like type sound, you know, but, yep. but there's, a, but it's not, I don't see there's, I don't think there's going to be a whole wave of bands like we saw from the seventies and eighties again. It's, there's just too much else out there to listen to. It's hard for anyone to grab for a band to really grab the brass ring and hold on to it. Yeah. And I think the other part of it too, and, and, and Richie and I have talked a lot about this on the show too, is that, and, and not to not to crap all over you know America and stuff, but I think we've kind of just become kind of spoiled with all of this, and we just figure, yeah, live music, nah, we can just sit at home, we can see it on YouTube, we can do this, we can. Do... I don't think there's a huge market here anymore, at least for hard rock and metal to fill arenas, except for things like maybe ACDC or something like that. You definitely see it with you know, like these big country music tours where they sell out in like two days and they fill stadiums. But I think for hard rock and heavy metal, you know, a lot of the stuff that Richie and I have gone to, you know, great bills and it's like half full. And like, are you kidding me? This was a, this was a cheap, you know, cheap ticket too. So, but you know, Europe's a different story where there's still the passion for the music is still there. I would say that Europe as a whole I think it's a little misleading how it's promoted in um, in the press and how the bands promote it because England or the UK as a whole is fantastic. Germany as a whole is fantastic. France is hit or miss depending on who the band is. Mm. That's from talking to bands when doing interviews and they'll tell you, you know, oof, Paris was brutal or, you know, this – show was brutal because hell uh who did i interview lazarus ad and bonded by blood when they were touring together a few years ago they played on a boat in paris and they couldn't fill that boat (laughs) so um 
It depends. And when you get down to Spain, you get to Italy. I've had artists tell me flat out, we're never playing either one of these countries again because there just isn't enough money. And piracy has a lot to do with it as well. There's, I mean, (laughs) the country that I'm in right now has the number one amount of piracy out of a first world country. So a lot of bands are selling less than 200 albums. So how are you going to tour in a country? How are you going to drive, you know, 18 hours, 20 some odd hours from Germany to play two dates when you've sold no albums, you've sold very little merch and no one's showing up to the shows on top of that. So it's it's a hard sell. Oh, I don't know. If anybody I talk to now that thinks like, I'm going to join a band and I'm going to be a professional musician, I mean, I got to wonder if they need their head examined. Because for hard rock and metal, man, it's brutally hard. Even if you're a well-known name, there's guys out there that are struggling, man. They, like, they can't get by on anything. And people that had hits years ago, you know, they're if you had a hit twenty years ago and before or actually closer to thirty years ago now, um, you can usually survive off of that. But man, it's just for bands that are coming up now, it's brutally hard and there's no money in it. There's just yeah. no there's no money in it. You're right. I mean the the guest we got coming up on the show next week, Norman Skinner, I mean, how does he do it? He's he's in four different bands. You know, great vocalist. And any one of them is a great band, but he's he's in four different ones to do it. And you see a lot more people that are doing it. That's what Jason McMaster kind of started that whole trend. He was in like seven bands or something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the guy was all over the place. I mean, you know, you, you would think, well, why was he doing that? I mean, he must have been making a bunch of dangerous toys, but, you know, no way. They just got to the, they got at the end of that ride and he he had to do a bunch of other stuff and everything he does is great. I mean, Broken yeah. Teeth, awesome band, you know. Broken Teeth are a good band. But yeah, yeah, it's just like he has to do seven bands to make what one band would make 25 years ago. Yeah. And that's it's it's sad. I mean, I, and we've tried to push people on our show. We like you hear something you like, go buy it. And you do it with your stuff, with your track of the week and everything and mm. you know, we I think we try to fill that gap cuz obviously radio is not, you know, they're oh, going to no. Yeah. They're going to play the same handful of 10 bands that don't even need the money as it is. So, Like you say, radio sucks. It does. It absolutely does. Yeah. But, but, but you're right. Yeah. yeah, so you've got to, and we, you know, we push Amazon store links. But at the same time, even as much as we try to push them to buy music, that's not what's paying their bills. You have to go to shows and you have to buy merch because yeah. that's where their money's coming from. And everybody's like bitching about concert tickets and why do I have to pay $90 to see Motley Crue and Alice Cooper? Because they're not making any money on album sales anymore. Right. You know, and they, they charge a bigger guarantee now because of that. So the promoter has to make his money back. So there's your $90 ticket. That explains it. Yeah, absolutely. And and with all the union fees and everything that that are involved in shows, I mean, everything has gone. I mean, uh, almost every industry has been somehow affected by insurance and, and union costs. So it's happened, you know, in all the concert venues across the U.S. I remember hearing how bands would purposely play New Jersey instead of New York because the actual stages weren't unionized when, when I used to live in the States. And it would be a big difference because any time that there was a merch stand set up, you actually had to have one to two 
union laborers there yep. to sell shirts because that's what you know was set up in in the agreement to permit the uh the concert to go on yeah. uh when they're setting up stages you have to have union approved carpenters you, you know and all of these are just extra costs that are that go over to the band and then they're passed on to the fans and god forbid you break curfew or else you're paying them all another hour oh yeah, yeah. i mean it it's ridiculous there's there was a great blog post that uh rob flynn did a few weeks back about that whole thing uh there are a bunch of things that i absolutely agree with him upon there are a few that i don't because i think he's forgetting about some of his own bands past and how they sort of jumped on trends to to stay relevant and there's no knock that uh, that any band does that because i mean at the end of the day this is this is a job for them and like we're saying you know the majority of bands are are scraping by and and even in that blog he goes on to say that you know they're only playing half an hour to 40 minutes at most festivals because they can't survive just doing their own tours they need to they need to play these slots because they really have no other option and Chris, you had a, a very interesting question there, and I've heard a lot of people bring this up, that once, you know, the generations of bands that we've been accustomed to seeing in certain, you know, in certain environments are gone, there's no one that's going to take over. And once, you know, ACDC and Metallica are gone, as far as hard rock and metal are concerned, there will never be another arena or stadium band that can do it all by themselves these two bands can still more or less sell out any place or close to selling out any place where they play and they don't need a second band to sort of help fill in the gaps where you're seeing kiss going out with def leppard you're seeing motley Crue going out with alice cooper I know a lot of people are saying, oh, well, see, Kiss is washed up, and that's the reason that they're doing this. No, it just makes more economical sense to take another band that's going to help, you know, draw in an, an extra, you know, five to 7,000 um, tickets every night to help round out that shed, you know, so they're not papering as many tickets as they have been in the past. Well, and it also goes back to the concert tickets being so expensive because they have to pay for all the fees. So... If you're going to pay 90 bucks to see a concert, you're more likely to pay that $90 to see Kiss and Def Leppard than Kiss and, say, Buck Cherry or somebody else opening up for them. Yeah. I think another interesting, you know, probably not the the uh, the best point of view with all of this, but, you know, you talk about, you know, and that is a great question about, you know, who's going to fill these stadiums. But, you know, if you think back to the last times that you've been to a lot of these stadium shows with these bigger bands and you think of the crowd that's around you, I mean, how many of them, that's maybe the only event they go to the entire year. Right. They're probably going to get, like, totally shit-faced and not remember half of it. Right. And, you know, they only know a few songs or whatever else. But you see a lot of these bands that are in the smaller venues, and the crowd that's usually there, they're all there because they're into seeing that band. And, you know, and for them, that's like, 
they're absorbing what they're what they're there to see and it and it really is this this event and not just kind of hey this one night out of the year woohoo kind of thing and you know it's the, it's you know it's not a bunch of oh it's look it's that guy kind of a thing and so in a way maybe you know some of this is is not a bad thing because you're going to go see bands with people that really are there for the same reason you are because you know this is just an incredible thing to be at and you know and and not this other kind of thing that goes on a lot of times with these big arena shows. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Victor. No, I was just going to say that I, I sort of mentioned something along those lines earlier this week on Facebook as well. I, I heard Eddie Trunk mention something similar. And I, and I really thought about uh, what you had brought up, Chris, the, the price for tickets, the way that the economy has been these last five years or so, you know, people's disposable income goes somewhere else. And people of our age group, when, when you get older and you have kids and it's not the same being, you know, late teens, early twenties where, you know, there are four or five shows back to back, uh, where you're into the headliner and, and you've got, you know, that's where all your money's going. It really doesn't matter. You've got no other, expenses in your life whereas as the band gets older you get older and the 90 dollar ticket all of a sudden is the difference between you know buying a pair of sneakers for your kid or going out and seeing some band that you've already seen 10 times and that's why my kids wear three-year-old sneakers no i'm just kidding you know, but it, but it is true. You know, like you know, when we went and I took my daughter to the Death Magnetic tour, we had a, we had great seats. It was you know, pretty much almost front row type of thing. But there was definitely some loyal fans that were around us that were into all of that stuff, and you could tell because of you know, especially with the the pre show songs and which things that they you know, okay, the people around us they kind of know all these songs. That's good. But then you know there's then there was a whole bunch of other people around and there was like two guys next to us that were so blitzed that they didn't even last through the first few songs it's kind of this is probably their their one time out this entire year and they think it's a cool thing to do and and if it was a small club show they probably wouldn't have been there and i think it's it's that kind of stuff that just makes it like why am i even here like this this sucks on the other hand you know Richie and i going to see Queensryche at a you know at a small place you know up in new hampshire and you know, great crowd, packed house, but everybody's in there. You know, totally into it, totally into the music. Way, way better show to be at. Uh, you mentioned which Queens record are you referring to? Um, the good one okay. with Michael did I, Wilton. Did you hear about when uh, I went to see Jeff Tate's version last year here in Nashville? No. Uh, uh, Victor, can you indulge me and let me tell this story real quick? Go, go ahead. Okay. All right. I I wanted to get an interview with Jeff. Um, the week that they came here to Nashville. So I'd seen Queensryche before, and I was I was kind of on the fence on whether I wanted to go see him again with Jeff's group or not. And um, I put in a request, and I never heard anything. And then all of a sudden the day of the show comes up, and I get an email from their management going, you're on the guest list with you know press passes and everything. Enjoy the show. Because um, they, well, they had offered me an interview, like a 10-minute interview before sound check with Jeff. And as you guys know, if we do an interview, we want a full hour with somebody to get into things. So I was just like, no, nah, I don't. Ten minutes, I don't. I don't it's not. I'll, I'll wait till I have more time with him. So I was, I was like, well, do I go see 
Jeff Tate's Queensryche or not. So I decided I called up a friend who writes for the website and and we went and saw it. And um, the band was good. It's actually, I mean, yeah, sure, it's not really Queensryche, but I mean, he had great players with him. Sass Jordan was on stage. Ryan Tishy was on drums. Rudy Sarzo was on bass. Robert Sarzo was on guitar. It was it was a really good group of players, and they sounded great. But the problem was they were playing this place called War Memorial Auditorium, and this place will seat probably, I'd say if it was packed to the gills, this place would seat seven, 800 people. There were no more than like 85, 90 people in this place. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was terrible. And like me and my friend are sitting at a table near the back, and then it's just this wide open floor, and then like this small group of people huddled in front of the stage. And... You know, there's tables and stuff out and people sitting back and it's kind of, you know, uptight looking. And at one point, Jeff Tate was just like, Nashville, huh? Music City, huh? He's like, I feel like I'm playing at the senior prom. <laughs> <laughs> and I did meet Jeff after the show. Really nice guy, regardless of what you think of what he's done with the the band name. But yeah, it was, uh, I've got some pictures on the website if you look up the review and it's, you can see how empty the floor is, but it was just like, it's kind of obvious who's winning the battle of the Queens Rikes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, you know, that comes out and they, I mean, they came right out with Queen is Queen of the Reich and it's like, holy crap. It's like, we are back. And from that point on, they had, they had us all, you know, totally hooked. I mean, granted, I had sat with the band beforehand, so maybe I was a little bit biased, but when they come out with something like that and it's like, you just like flipped the switch back to everything that you got, got in that band to begin with. I mean, I bought that original vinyl when it came out and it just to hear that again and hear it done the right way. It's like, holy crap, this is just incredible. Well, I got to hear I'm American. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fairness, they they played Mind Crime all the way from front to back. That was kind of cool. Yeah, and and you're right. He does have a great group of players with him. That that is absolutely undeniable. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was it was an interesting night to say the least. He wasn't wearing the wig he's been parading around. No, on the he was wearing the vest though, and uh, I don't know if you do you do you guys follow Metal Sludge at all. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, they, they've, uh, they've, they've, <laughs> they, they've had a lot of fun with Jeff Tate. Jeff Tate, they like because they, you know, he wears the vest with no shirt on, and like for a while they took to calling it Vestreich, and then <laughs> they, and then they got, then they took to calling it, calling him Uncle Vester, <laughs> and then uh, somebody said his wife uh, to saw a picture of him, and they were like, he looks like Mister Clean, so then he started calling them Mister Cleansreich. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh yeah. I'm interested to see how how much longer we're gonna have two Queens Rikes. We talked about this the last time that me and Scott got together, and I think the general consensus that we came across was that they're probably gonna do something similar to Great White, where it's gonna be just Queens alone, and then Jeff Tate's Queens or Jeff Tate, the original voice of Queens Some something to that extent where both bands will maintain the name, but there will be something to, you know, identify the difference between the two. The the saddest thing, though, out of all of this, as we've seen from L.A. Guns, for example, is even if you have that, you know, that short little thing to differentiate, you're still going to have promoters that are just going to promote regular Queensryche because you're going to draw more people. That, that I mean, that's... The, the the fact of the matter, um, unfortunately, in the end, the, the the fans end up losing out, and 
I mean, not for nothing, if Jeff didn't want to play these tracks for all these years, I mean, I got no problem with him just doing the tracks that he's into and the ones that he wants to play. You know, it just seems like the whole mind crime thing with him doing it this time around is just forced and just trying to keep up with what the other version of the band is doing. Yeah. Well, I'd rather hear that front to, front to back than dedicated chaos. Oh. <laughs> well, that that goes without saying, but would you want to have to listen to both that and Mind Crime 2 back to back? No. No. I'm not a fan of Mind Crime 2. But yeah, I I see your point because you know, that was the whole crux of their argument, wasn't it? That he didn't want to do the old stuff anymore and it was passé and he's more happy moving forward and then all of a sudden, we're getting mind crime front to back. So, I mean, yeah, he does come off pretty hypocritical in that. He, he hasn't come off well through the whole thing, really. Now, the, the Queensryche is a band that, even before this happened, they had the major change with Chris DeGarmo. They've never quite had someone that's come in and, and filled that role to the same capacity. Now, with... Um, with Parker in the band, which is just a another just weird scenario. He comes into the band because he's Jeff Tate's father or son-in-law. He ends up divorcing his daughter and ends up staying with the other band instead of, you know, the the guy that brought him into the band. He was in his solo band as well. So there's just so many just nutty facts with that band. But... They've never really recovered from losing Chris DeGarmo, and maybe that has to do with Jeff Tate taking over and being the, you know, the Steve Harris of the band and being the the one controlling, you know, what material gets out there. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a, you know, Chris was kind of that, was kind of the yin to Jeff's yang, you know, that so they kind of would have to offset each other, and you, so you kind of got those concept album followed by our you know, a heavier album followed by a more of a concept album. And, and yeah, ever since Chris has been gone, it's been like a Steve Harris thing. Yeah. We're going to keep doing it my way instead. And he's been the only voice. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that material has come nowhere close to uh queen of the Reich or, or anything that really, you know, brought people on board. So, yeah. And I mean, definitely the, you know, the, the album that they put out, with the, the latest one with Michael Wilton. I mean, that's a really, that's a solid, solid album, you know? And, and that just sounds like great classic Queensryche. And it's, and, you know, when you sit with those guys too, they all seem like, you know, a band, they're all, they hang out, they're having a good time. And it seems like they're a bunch of people who enjoy being with each other as well. And that seems to translate with the music as well. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoy the new one they put out. It was, it was, I mean, I knew they were going to try to do a return to the old sound, and I think they absolutely pulled it off. I, it, Redemption's in, uh, in particular is an amazing song. Oh, that that is, and live, it's fantastic too. Yeah, you mean you guys don't like cold? Not really. <laughs> no, and and I, I mean, I know when I when I picked it up, and the first thing I see is you know where dreams go to die, and my punchline to that is Jeff Tate's Queensrÿche. <laughs> certainly on tour from what i saw was that done on purpose you think um 
I don't think so. I, I was I was actually almost tempted to ask Michael about that, but um, yeah, I just kind of decided to avoid that question. Not as um, deliberate as frequency unknown. That was pretty deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to um, what we've been sort of talking about throughout our chat here, for each of you. What band's lineup changes really bothered you, and which ones did you actually applaud? Obviously, Scott, you're saying this Queensryche switch, but was there any other lineup change like this that you know you think really improved the band? Uh, you know, a lot of them I don't think. It's, it's hard to pinpoint improvement ones as much as, as disappointment ones. I think that's kind of human nature. Um, I think that, although it's, it may sound controversial to some people, but I actually think that, that bringing, uh, Rob Trujillo into, into Talica was actually kind of set them back onto something better than, um, where they were going with Jason. I just think he is more closer to what Cliff used to do. So I think that was a, was a pretty good change. Chris? Oh, man, there's so many bands to consider on something like this. Um, as far as one that I was disappointed in, and it's more because I'm just disappointed that the version of the band that I love is not together, is Great White. Um, I know a lot of people like Terry Eilis's vocals on, on their stuff, but I just I can't hear that band without hearing Jack Russell. And, I mean, his his vocal delivery and... Just his set of pipes is that he's the sound of that band in my opinion. I I can't hear Terry. It just sounds like a different band with him singing for them. Mm. I think there's also a dynamic between him and Mark Kendall that used to work on stage too that isn't there with the current band. Yeah, and I I can't really speak to that because I haven't seen them with Terry live, but I did see them with Jack. I saw them open for Kiss in '92 on the Revenge tour, and man, just a just a great solid band and regardless of the controversy they've been through with the whole fire thing. And I just, I think it's a damn shame that that's what they're going to be remembered for instead of a lot of great albums that they put out. But I just, I can't, uh, yeah, I can't hear great white with, without Jack's vocals on there. They're just that the, the, he's him and Mark together. They're two very integral parts of that band and I can't hear it without them. As far as improvement goes, Victor, that's a real loaded question because <laughs> I'm guaranteed to piss people off with my answer because, um, and I'll, all right, I'll go ahead and put myself on the, the noose. Um, I think kiss improved by bringing Vinnie Vincent into the band. And I think the lineup with Vinnie Vincent and Eric Carr was musically, maybe the m most technically good version of that band that ever existed. And I mean, a lot of people don't like Vinnie's weedly, weedly guitar solos and, there, I can see their point on that. I happen to love that stuff, but songwriting wise, you bring in a, you bring in somebody with the songwriting ability of Vinnie Vincent and the thunderous drumming of Eric Carr that gave them a kick in the ass after stuff like Unmasked and The Elder, and you put out Creatures of the Night and lick it up back to back. Man, that's that is a monstrous lineup, and I love Bruce Kulick and I love the stuff he did mostly from Asylum on. Animalize, I'm not the biggest fan of. Could I, I, I say, imagine some of the stuff that Vinny used for the first Invasion album 
and mix that in with some of Paul and Gene's material on Animal Eyes, and you would have had an album that's right up there on par with Creatures and Lick It Up. So I will say that I think Vinny being brought in with Eric Carr improved Kiss a, a lot musically. They already did that, though, because Boys Are Gonna Rock became uh, on the eighth day. Right. Because the only thing that they conserved from Boys Are Gonna Rock is, is the um, the chorus, uh, the actual uh, main riff to the rest of the song ended up on uh, that track on Lick It Up. So, and I, but although I think Boys Are Gonna Rock is a much better song than On the Eighth Day. Yeah, without a doubt. But we would have seen Gene and Paul, you know, kissify the track. I'm just saying, imagine Shoot You Full of Love or Back on the Streets, uh, well, Do You Want to Make Love. Those songs would have been excellent on Animal Eyes. Well, Back on the Streets. They, did, the they demoed it for Creatures. They demoed it for Creatures, and they went with I Still Love You instead. Yeah. And apparently, that's the song that um, that got their attention to... Uh, try to work with him. Um, I think you guys missed two obvious switches here that um, that people would say would improve lineups. Um, but because they happened so long ago and people are so used to a certain member being in a band, I, I think there there's two that um, that often get overlooked. One is the Paul Deano to Bruce Dickinson switch in Maiden. Oh, that yeah, well, that's a that's a gimme, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and the other one is uh, Deep Purple with um, Ian Gillen coming into the band. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was a total. I mean, that it was that was Ian, but that was also um, you know Roger coming in at that time as well. I mean, that was a whole change up with that one. So that was a big shake up as opposed to a. You know, a smaller move with with Paul. True, very true. Um, and, and one that was a that was kind of a and it was kind of a, a disappointment when he left, and I'm glad he's back in. Is is of course you know with with uh, with Cheap Trick when Tom Peterson left. I, mean, I think their sound suffered for a long time until he came back. You don't feel the same way about losing Bunny Carlos. Uh, no, not as much. But then again, I was, you know, really into Tom Peterson as a bass player because I was, you know, being a former bass player. Um, I'm not, yeah, not as much about Bunny, but I mean, he isn't, he is integral. He goes back to what I talked about, you know, with something like Phil Rudd. He does have a very much a different style. He's one of the few people that actually played a trap kit instead of a drum kit a lot of times and things made him a lot different. Um, so he did lend a lot of it, but I, I always tended to key in on a lot of the stuff that Tom was doing, especially with the eight string bass work and 12 and 12. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for Hamer being able to build them for him. <laughs> and obviously without that, you wouldn't have had a King's X with the, um, eight and 12 string bases. Mm-hmm. So. Oh yeah. What a sound. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 you messed me up there, Chris. I, I thought I was going to be a smartass with mentioning Maiden in Deep Purple, and you sort of poo-pooed me there. Oh, so. Sorry, man. I mean, no, they're I mean, they're they're obvious. They're great choices, but you know, and I I did I did overlook it. But like I said before, I even picked. I was like, God, there's so many to choose from. But I mean, 
Right. And I almost picked, uh, you know, for improvement, I almost picked Gary Sharon and Van Halen, but I just couldn't do it. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. Um, it, to be quite honest with you, and, and here's, here's my controversial uh, shit-stirring <laughs> moment of the episode, um, I prefer Gary Sharon's Van Halen to Sammy Hagar's Van Halen. So, oh. yes. You, you, mean, you only mean live, though, right? I mean, in every way, shape, or form, you take, in my opinion, in my opinion, 5150 is the only solid album that they did with, with Sammy. Everything else had its moments, <laughs> but <clears throat> I, I'm just not a fan. I'm not a Sammy Hagar fan. And honestly, I would take Eat Him and Smile over any of the albums that they released with Sammy. Oh, I would do that, but the For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album is great. You don't like that album? I loved it when it came out, but it's an album that I don't know if I played it too much or I just got so sick and tired of going to sporting events and hearing Top of the World like every two seconds followed by Right Now. and It's probably what it is. It was probably a lot of saturation. I mean, you know, Gary's great, and I mean... The guy just, you know, he lives only about 20 miles away. So, I mean, you know, Boston guy. So I got to be I got to be somewhat loyal. But I, but I don't really think he had a, a an honest chance to actually develop into that band. I think that our one example of, of him being in there is kind of poorly done and, and flawed to begin with. As, you know, because, you know, we can do better stuff. And I just think that that was something that it just I don't think we ever really saw the, the, the true potential there. No, I think we saw Eddie kind of being delusional or over inebriated and, and hearing yes too many times from other people and Gary, what's Gary going to go in there and tell Eddie Van Halen? No, that sucks. Don't do it. You know I mean? Right. I mean, Gary Sharon probably was just in, in awe that he was in Van Halen the entire time he was in there. Mm -hmm. But, but I saw that, I saw that tour live and I'll tell you what, this is where I'll agree with Victor I love the fact that they were able to do a lot of the old raw stuff because they didn't have Hagar there with his hang up about doing Dave material. Like I heard Mean Street, Romeo Delight. I mean, there was a there was a crap load of old stuff played on that tour, and it was incredible. It was a great live show. Although I, I still at, the whole time I was like, Gary just doesn't fit in this band. But who does? You know, they they weren't going to be able to pull off a third lead singer change. They, they, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. You mean Mitch Malloy wouldn't have been a, a better choice? Oh gosh. He lives here in Nashville. I should try to talk to him sometime. He he just put out this whole video. I don't know if you guys have seen it about the whole Van Halen tryout and how he was given the job and then the press release came out and it was given to Gary and I don't know, it's it's up there on YouTube, so Yeah, I've heard the story. Um that's another interesting one, and, and we're going to wrap it up after this because um, I've had you guys on for for well past um, what, what you guys had agreed upon here. It's almost like uh, making you guys indentured servants. Hey, so. yeah, I'm having fun, man. I'm glad to finally get to talk to Scott. Yeah, I know, huh? It's been uh, just a mutual admiration across two podcasts. So, yeah, it's good to talk to you, too. Yeah, I was going to tell you, man, that uh, that Strange Highways episode you did with the keyboard player, that was awesome. Oh, thanks. 
Yeah, I, that was incredible. It was that guy had a. I, I can't remember his name. It's escaping me. But yeah, Scott Warren. Scott Warren. Yeah, yeah he had a he had a great insight into that time. That was really enjoyable to listen to. Great. Yeah, we got more of those coming. So I think at least two more episodes on that one before we're done. But awesome. Yeah, those those have been real cool so far. I haven't listened to all of them yet, and um, I I mean. I love that album. So um, that's one interesting lineup change I actually talked to Vinny about, Vinny Apice. But um, the Van Halen change, I know a lot of people are up in arms about Michael Anthony not being involved in the band. And I think if you lay all the cards out on the table, then this is something that you brought up, Chris. If If you have a choice between no Van Halen... And Van Halen with Wolfgang, which of the two do you choose? I mean, I, I, for me personally, as much as I love Michael Anthony, I got to go with the version with Wolfgang because at least we're getting some sort of Van Halen. Sure, that's the only. I mean, that it's, if it's that or nothing, then you take that. I mean, I, I'd love to see Mike back in the band, but there's obviously a big hang up there with Eddie and him, his friendship with uh, Hagar. So, so be it. But. I'd like to have Dave's voice from about 10 years ago back, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if it's that or nothing, although I, like I said, just like with Paul Stanley and this is not me just bashing Paul, but Dave's voice is, it's not too good either. I purposely avoided seeing him on this last tour because of it. Yeah. And on the other hand though, Mikey can still hit those high notes. Yeah, he can. He really, and actually, and, and I'll give Wolfgang credit. He's, he's a pretty great singer in his own right. There, there's some debate about that, but uh, is there? From what I've heard, he sounds fine. Um, there's the, the, there are rumors that, that that they're going the Motley Crue route. Oh, but, uh, wow! So take take that for what take that for what it's worth. We're, get, That's, we're, we're getting to a point to where one of these days we're going to go to a concert and it's just going to be a video screen and we're going to watch videos of the bands play. <laughs> they've done that with Elvis already, so don't. <laughs> Surprised. God. Okay. <laughs> hey, the, the 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 whole entire you know we're, we're talking about all these package builds. Just think about it when all of us were, you know, growing up, end of the seventies, mid eighties. How many, you know, R and B and doo wop bands and and all this from back in the fifties and sixties were doing the same exact thing that all these hard rock and metal bands were doing. So. Uh, bunching up together, going out on tours, and you know it's just everything repeating itself. Just a few generations, uh, you know, later. Yeah, I'm ready for Kiss 2.0. <laughs> uh, that's probably not going to be off in the uh, the 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 far off future. Well, it's, the the, hark, the hark, sorry that harkens back to like you said the doo-wop groups and stuff like you in the 80s you had the coasters come out on stage and it's all guys that are 21 you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like these guys are like young enough to be the coasters grandchildren and and they probably were yeah but But yeah i think uh in my opinion with kiss i think eventually they'll do a a vegas residency and then they'll switch it over to kiss 2.0 i don't know if that'll tour i don't know if that'll have the legs to tour but it'll at least be a vegas show um, that'll be interesting. I'm, I'm on the fence with these Vegas residencies because I think Def Leppard has been one of the only bands to do it correctly, in my opinion. 
So, I mean, if you're, if you're getting fans to fly out there, you got to do something special that, you know, that people aren't seeing on every other, you know, date of your, mm. date of your, um, your tour, like Motley Crue did. Oh, we're going to do a few shows, uh, a few songs acoustically, but, you know, yeah. there's it's that we've been hearing for the last 10 years on every tour. You know, what's the big deal? Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, you look at what they did, you know, what Lep did on their residency. And, you know, you see them on the regular tour thing and you kind of you, you kind of know it's a scripted show. They got lighting cues, this, that and the other thing. But they actually had like a swing to them when they were doing it in Vegas. The songs were kind of a little bit rougher, a little bit rawer. They had a little bit more balls and energy and feel to them and stuff. And it was things that were you know, I mean, I remember seeing them open up for Blackfoot in a club in Boston on their first tour and to see that kind of not ultimately the same energy back to that with, you know, with Pete Willis and the band and all that. But still, it it isn't that same huge professional thing that they usually roll out. They were having fun. You could see it. And, and right. you know, it, like you said, it was done the right way for that that one. Absolutely. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, as far as Vegas residencies go? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'd like to go out and see one. I haven't seen one myself, but I mean, I've wa- I watched some of the clips of of Def Leppard's do theirs, and it looks like it's a really cool thing. I mean, like because they can tailor the show the way they want to tailor it, and it can they can basically present it exactly how they want. I still is if Kiss ever does it, I and like all of us fans of we always we complain about this all the time, but like I wish they would do a Vegas residency where they could do like rotating stages from out their career, you know. How cool would it be to like see that Creatures of the Night tank set up one night and then go to the show the next night and there's the Hot in the Shade stage? Or, you know, I just, there's the the possibilities are pretty endless because in Vegas you could just create easy to move set pieces and just make that happen in no time and not have to drag the thing all over the country, you know? Yeah, I think what would kill it for Kiss for doing it though is I think the same thing that a lot of people argue about with them is. No matter what the tour is, the set list almost never ever changes. Oh, I know. That's uh, I could do it. I could talk for two hours just on that. Yeah. So you know, some oddball song and throw it in there. You I mean you're never going to hear them? I mean, it's a bad example, but they're never going to throw Plaster Caster out there. You know what I mean? It's just it never ever. It's the same set list year after year. And to do a residency and really pull things in. It would mean going back and and pulling other songs out of the catalog and doing them. Yeah, and that my whole argument with that, even on tour, how hard would it be to have like here's two slots in the show, song number four, five and song number twelve, and those slots rotate and pick yeah. five rarities and rotate them in and out. That's all you'd have to do. Too much work. Yeah, it's, it's God. That's because yeah. yeah, we're busy signing deals with Hello Kitty. We can't learn a couple of odd songs. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I think if they haven't done it in the cruise or with the cruise, they're they're not going to do it. If um, if if they do some sort of residency, I can honestly see them, and this is what I've always in, envisioned them doing when they hang it up. And a lot of people have that have heard this opinion have sort of gotten sort of pissed off at me, but I can honestly see them doing a Broadway show similar to what Queen did, similar to what ABBA did, similar to like the Rock of Ages type deal where it's some type of a Broadway cast 
where they're, you know, doing whatever they do along to their songs. I could honestly see that before residency and that becoming like the Kiss 2.0. Wow. I almost see it what, what Chris had suggested, but only like what they did for a lot of the, the Beatles things, like with, you know, I think is it Rain and stuff, where they have all the different eras and the way they do right. it. I could actually see them doing that with, you know, like a multiple cast and they kind of go through the eras of it. I don't know if they do the whole stage setup, but um, yeah, I could see that though. Cirque du Soleil kiss that that would be very interesting. <laughs> no, no, Dean Simmons Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mars Attacks. To follow the radio show and podcast, like us on Facebook by going to Facebook forward slash Mars Attacks Radio. You'll find us on Twitter also. Follow us at Mars Aries 2005. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, or just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com to download or stream episodes. Or you can just go to the homepage of MarsAttacksRadio.com to find out more about the radio show and podcast. This concludes our show.